Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. And as always, we welcome questions you may have. And so if you'd like to call us, the number locally is 843-525-1859. Our toll-free number is 877-WAGP-980. When you call, you can go on the air live. Or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. You can also email us here directly into the studio and we receive a number of questions that way each week and the email address is tbl for the bible line at wagp.net rick is always great to be here it is indeed pastor and uh, we've got a number of questions that have come in over the last couple of days as well as some left over from last week so let's get to them right away a listener in richmond hill uh, georgia asks what is meant by the leaves? Well, we'll get to that uh, question in just a second. We always give uh, preferential treatment to live callers, and we have one standing by right now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor Carl. Good morning, brother. This Thanks for Carl. calling today. Hey, Carl. Good to All hear right. your voice. Uh, I have a question. You were talking about when uh, the devil be locked away for a thousand years, and um, but in a thousand years he locked away. Will anybody... The ones who left on earth, will they pass away? And if they do, what, do they go to heaven? I mean, I guess heaven is there. So the people who's there for a thousand years, will they live on? And I'll just hang up and listen to your comment. You understand what I mean? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, we were dealing on Sunday with the first and the second resurrection, the first resurrection program dealing not so much with the time of the resurrection, but the kind of resurrection. Obviously, uh, when John says, Revelation 20, that those who have a part uh, is in the first uh, resurrection, Revelation 20, verse 6, are blessed uh, to be a part of that. He's not saying this is the first time anyone was ever raised from the dead. The Lord Jesus, obviously, was the first. He was the first fruits. And in keeping with the Feast of First Fruits, uh, before the big harvest came, a single stalk would be presented to the priest along with a grain, a handful of grain as a grain offering. And that pictured, of course, the Lord Jesus, the first to rise from the dead. And after his resurrection, as the New American Standard, ESV, King James, rightly and carefully translates, a number of Old Testament saints came out of the grave. Uh, That was a picture of the coming harvest that would then take place in the rapture at the end of the tribulation. And so your question really concerns, well, what about people, believers, during the millennial reign of Christ? Well, the Bible doesn't mention them as such in terms of if they die uh, and if they are the ones who do die. Uh, Isaiah mentions in towards the end of his prophecy that if a man during the millennial reign of Christ lives only to be 100 years, he's considered cursed. Well, that may be describing an unbeliever who dies during that time. Uh, Whether believers die or not during that time, the Bible is silent. But let's just say for the sake of argument, they do not. The fact is, is they still have a natural body that needs to be suited for heaven. 
So it appears at the end of the millennium, uh, the, that's when there will be the final resurrection in the first resurrection program when uh, millennial saints who enter the millennium in their tribulation body, because obviously for Satan to be able at the end of the thousand years to tempt the nations, there has to be unbelievers present. And if everyone's in a resurrected body, and if we can't be tempted in our resurrected body, then who's being tempted? Uh, well, that's why a pre-tribulation rapture is demanded, or at least a catching up before the second coming, that they're not one and the same events, but two distinct events. Because there are people saved during the Great Tribulation who enter into the millennial reign in their natural bodies. They're able to procreate, unlike someone who has a resurrected body who's like the angels, where they neither marry nor are given marriage. And uh, during that thousand years, I suppose if I were a tribulation saint, I could have a lot of children and great-grandchildren and so forth. And and yet their children will have to make a decision for Christ. And it's apparent that not all do, because when the thousand years is complete and Satan is loosed, he deceives the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. So there are people in a perfect environment under a perfect government don't respond, which really highlights the, the depravity of man's heart. And uh, as God describes it in Jeremiah, desperately wicked. Great question. Let's go to the next one. 525-1859, toll free, 877-WAGP980. And you can also email us at uh, TBL, as in the Bible line, at WAGP.net. That's TBL at WAGP.net. We have another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. I have three questions for you today. Um... Number one concerns um, salvation. Um, If a person went to a mainline denominational church and the plan of salvation was not presented, will um, that person have another chance to receive the Lord after the rapture? And then two more questions. How old will we be in heaven? Are there any references for this? And then the last question, um, Babies that have died and miscarried babies, how will we recognize them in heaven, and what age will they be? Thank you for your answer. Have a good day, and uh, I'll hang up and listen to the response. Thank you. All right. Uh, some some great questions. Let me deal with the last one first. The last question concerns uh, babies who are miscarried. Uh, I am doing a series called The Ten Most Commonly Asked Questions about Christianity, and there's a two-sided question on one side. What about those who've never heard the plan of salvation? Uh, People have never heard the name of Jesus. How does God deal with them? And the second question, similar, is what about those who can't believe? So there's those who don't have seemingly the chance to believe, and I deal with that. Their chance is really greater than most people understand. Uh, But secondly, what about those who can't believe, which would include maybe someone who's severely uh, retarded, born in a vegetable state, say, or aborted babies, uh, miscarried babies, uh, children who die before they have the mental capacity to understand the plan of salvation? How does God deal with them? And my argument will be, is uh, I will present that uh, in our series, and it's coming up and it will eventually be posted online, is that they'll go to heaven, uh, that God will indeed carry them into the kingdom of God. Uh, I think it's interesting that whenever Jesus uses an illustration, he never uses an illustration that has error in it. Um, Jesus doesn't teach truth using error. 
And so I think it is significant that Jesus said, truly, I say to you, unless you're converted to me, come like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child of my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it's better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck. So there's a sense in which a a child believes in the Lord. And it's interesting because uh, this scenario is given in three different occasions. One time where he holds a little baby in his arms, and another occasion when he stands the child next to him, and his teaching is the same. Um, And again, Jesus said, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you, that there are angels in heaven continually behold the face of my father who's in heaven. So he likens the kingdom of God to little children. For Jesus to use an illustration that had error in it, I think would not be consistent with who he is. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And so every illustration that he would use would be consistent with his own person. Uh, Some people say, well, only the children of elect people go to heaven. Well, that doesn't make sense. Uh, It's not even consistent with experience. You meet many people who are true believers who uh, have children who die that are lost. Um, That's indisputable. So what, just children of uh, who aren't able to understand? Uh, So it doesn't seem very consistent, that argument. Some would say, well, they go to hell. Uh, God didn't intend for them to go to heaven. Uh, I don't think so, I and I think it's a question people have to ask and answer because certainly as pastors, you deal with it. You know, I've done funerals before of children who've been less than a year old. You know, do I tell them, well, I'm sorry, your child is slipping and sliding in hell. That's what some people teach. I don't believe that. I believe they're in heaven. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. Um, and uh, And I think the Lord looks at the big picture. It's interesting in the prophet Jonah. Jonah, of course, was a a man of God who went to a place that he didn't really want to go to, and uh, it would be like uh, an American going to some nation that maybe you despise as an American because they hate us or are against us, and he sends him to a place that represents Israel's uh, enemies during his day, their worst enemies during the time of the prophet Jonah, and uh, of course he is the patriot that he is. He he uh, he goes in the opposite direction, but his patriotism should not have superseded his obedience to God. Anyway, at the end of that little prophecy, uh, then God said to Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should not I have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know the difference between their right hand and left hand, as well as many animals? Uh, So here's Jonah, you know, God, you know, burn the place out of oblivion, you know, bring your wrath down from heaven. And God is a compassionate God. He, He has concern for those people, those little children who don't know the difference between their left and their right hand, not to mention even the animals, which Jonah didn't care about. And God is compassionate even towards the animal world. So I take it that that God sees children in a different light, children who are unable to understand. People often ask me, well, when's the age of accountability? 
uh, and there have been different um, suggestions that have been presented in the course of church history. Some said 12 because they saw Jesus in the temple with the ability to reason with truth at the age of 12. No, I think that's just when it happened. He was there at 12 at the time uh, a boy, a young Jewish man, became a, a son of the law, Bob Mitzvah. Uh, and so you would expect to see him interacting at that time, at that level. But I don't think you can conclude from that that that's the time when uh, people become accountable. A lot of churches, too, uh, have a formal confirmation process or whatever right around that age. And so they've made this a magical age. I don't think so. Listen, I, I had a 10-year-old boy in my office a couple of years ago, and it was really sad um, when he left I my heart was grieved because I thought this child at 10 is already hardened towards the things of God. Uh, you know, I used to see that at a different age. When I was in campus ministry, when a freshman came on the campus, they were often the most receptive to the gospel. And the older they got through their four years in college and the more engrossed they became many in sin, the less sensitive uh, they were to, to God's uh, wooing of them. Um, and now when you see it in little children, it's, uh, it's really sad. So God doesn't give us an age of accountability. I think it's different for different children. I think there are some at the age of eight who understand their sin and what Jesus did for them. Uh, I, I think if had God given us an age of accountability, many of us would be very unwise. We'd say, oh, we got till he's 12. And knowing human nature, we'd put it off to the last minute. Boy, you should be praying for your children while they're in the womb for their conversion. So uh, what about when we meet these children who are miscarried or aborted? How are they in heaven? Well, the Bible's silent, but I take it and assume that since we get a resurrected body that's like Christ, that little children will be like adults. Uh, When Adam and Eve were created, God didn't uh, nurture them from little babies until they grew into adults. He he created them as uh, full-grown human beings. And I, and I take it that that's probably what will happen since, um, you know, our resurrected body, unlike our earthly body, doesn't change. And so uh, I think if you've seen someone uh, that you've lost as a child or is uh, miscarried or aborted, you, you'll see, and you know Christ, you'll see him in heaven, and God will give you the capability to uh, recognize them. I think there's a third side to the question. Uh, so anyway, uh, there was, and I was taking some notes as yeah. seriously as I could, anyway. but she was very quick. So I didn't get that third, that third question. Maybe she'll call in and ask it. But in the meantime, uh, we still have that listener in Richmond Hill. Let's Georgia. go to them. All right. They wanted to know what uh, is meant by the leaves in revelation 22 being for the healing of the nations. All right. Let me go there real fast. Um, revelation chapter 22, and he showed me a river. Of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse in the throne of God and of the Lamb of, and the throne of God and of the Lamb of God shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. So what is this tree? Well, it's identified as the tree of life, not totally surprising, because the first time you see the tree of life in the Bible is all the way back in the book of Genesis, where God 
you know, said, listen, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in it you shall die in the day you eat from it. But God also speaks of the tree of life here in the book of Genesis. And I suppose had Adam and Eve eaten from the tree of life, uh, their destiny would have been sealed forever. And so what happens, of course, after man sins and falls, God puts a cherubim at the entrance to the garden. So he drove the man out, and at the east garden, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim. It's a duel in Hebrew, two, two angels, and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And that really was an act of God's mercy, that he kept man from the tree of life in his fallen state, because had they eaten in their fallen state, they would have been immortalized in their sin. So in heaven, we have an opportunity to participate in the tree of life. And I, and I think it's for a couple of reasons. Here's the debate, and here's the trouble uh, that expositors have with this verse, and you, you're highlighting it. Uh, by the way, there's a river there in heaven. There's water. Some, and it's coming from the throne of God. Some have taken this passage of Scripture because they say, well, in what sense do we need healing in heaven if uh, there's no sickness in heaven? And that's a good question. So they take this as a reference to the millennial kingdom. Uh, I don't think so because the river in the millennial kingdom comes from the temple. This river comes from the throne of God, and it appears very clearly in the broader context, beginning in chapter 21, there's a new heaven and a new earth created. This has nothing to do with the refurbished earth of the millennial kingdom. The word here for healing, though, is an interesting word. It's the Greek word therapeo. We get our word therapeutic from it, therapeian. Uh, is actually the form here. And we get our word therapeutic from it, which speaks of healing. And something that's therapeutic is not just um, where you heal a a sickness, but something that enhances life. It's health-giving. And I think in that sense, since there is no sickness in heaven, that the tree of life will be health-giving in that it will promote enjoyment, not so much uh, correct some ill because there is no sickness in heaven. And we'll eat of this tree, and it's described as bearing 12 different kinds of fruit. You know, sometimes uh, people say, well, what kind of fruit was on the tree? You know, or, or why did Adam eat the apple? Well, fruit is a, um, a plural term here and in the Old Testament. And so we learn from the book of Revelation, there wasn't one kind of fruit, but 12 kinds of fruit that are on this tree. And of course, in Revelation 2 and verse 7, when Jesus uh, addresses the seven churches, he, he speaks of the fact that the one who overcomes, which speaks of a true believer, he will participate in the tree of life. Uh, and then he'll say later in this chapter, blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates of the city. I think among other things too, God is underscoring the fact that the curse is forever gone that our salvation is secure. Sometimes people say, well, if Satan could fall from heaven, couldn't we fall from heaven? And it's underscored in the fact that all those who overcome, all those true believers, all those who have had their robes washed in the blood of Christ will participate in the tree of life, underscoring our eternal security, that there is no more curse, and that heaven is indeed forever for the saints of God. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, I called back. 
I have a question. Um, how old will we be in heaven? Like, um, are there any Bible references to this? Like if someone is like 96 years old and dies? Yeah, no, there's no Bible references, but it appears obviously when Adam and Eve are created that they are created as adults. Uh, it appears, too, that they have a certain youthfulness and that they have the ability to procreate. Um And so I take it that when God will uh, recreate us in our resurrected bodies, he won't raise up infants as infants. And I know there was a popular um, country song a few years back, Jesus Had a Rocking Chair, you know, speaking of uh, this Christian lady who had lost her baby. So she made a famous country song about it, how Jesus is rocking, you know, her baby in heaven. But I don't think so. I, I think letting Scripture interpret Scripture that sense one, we are recognizable, um, and two, that our bodies don't change in heaven, and that all those who are participating in worship in heaven have the ability to express praise and adoration to God, that there's a developmental side that has taken place in the resurrected body. So I don't think infants will be raised as infants because everyone in heaven has the ability to worship God. And uh, an infant who doesn't have the capacity to even know language. So, again, there's not any single verse that would say, well, we're going to be 50 or whatever. But I think when you put a number of different passages together, uh, that that's how I would conclude it. But, you know, if I'm wrong, well, we'll, we'll find out when we get there. Does that help, listener? Yes. And I have another question, please, and then I'll hang up and listen. If a person went to a mainline denominational church yes, that and the was plan your of question. salvation was not presented, right. will you have another chance to receive the Lord after the rapture? And I'll hang up and listen for that good, one. Good question. You know, clearly uh, there are reasons why some people don't hear the gospel. One of the underscored re- reasons that Paul gives uh, in the book of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, he's speaking of that time when the Antichrist will be upon the earth. And he's giving the uh, Thessalonians some assurance that they're not in that time, that they won't be in that time. They may have thought they were in that time because the persecution was so intense. Uh, it may have been intense, but not nearly as intense as it will be during the time of the Great Tribulation. So he gives them a number of reasons why they can know that they're not in that time frame. And uh, among those reasons, he makes this statement. And then that lawless one, uh, the Antichrist, here called the lawless one, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all powers and signs and false wonders. It's, that's an interesting phrase in and of itself, because Christ comes with powers and signs and wonders Antichrist comes with powers and signs and false wonders. He comes in the place of Christ. He is against Christ. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved. And for this reason, for what reason? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So we know a couple of things. Number one, we know from Revelation chapter 7 that there are people who are saved during the Great Tribulation. 
uh, John speaks of a ceiling of 144,000 Jews who become God's uh, mouthpieces during the time of the Great Tribulation. And because of their ministry, he describes a group of people that he compares to the sand of the seashore that no man can number who are saved out of the Great Tribulation period. Most of those end up being martyred. Those who are not enter in the millennial reign in their natural bodies, as we were discussing in an earlier question today. But there are other people who will give allegiance to Antichrist. Why will they give allegiance? Why will they be deceived? Well, it will be a judgment of God. God will send a deluding influence upon them that they might believe what's false. So the guy who's listening to me today who says, I know I need to become a Christian. I'm just not ready yet. And then the catching up of the church takes place and the Antichrist is on the, on the, on the planet, they won't have a chance. They will be recipients of God's judgment because they had stiff-armed God and refused to obey his admonition that today is the day of salvation. When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart because they refuse to respond to God's admonition. God will send upon them a deluding influence. So how does that pan out with someone, say, in a liberal church? Well, people are in liberal churches for a couple of reasons, sometimes because they don't want to know the truth. It's the same reason that people are in cults today. Some people are in cults because the cult was the first to get them. Um, Very often cults are doing what God's people should be doing. Uh, They are systematically trying to win people to a false message. We are to be systematically trying to win people to the true message. So they have God's method, but the devil's message. And so they win some of those folks. Some of those folks are looking, they're searching, they're wondering, they're pondering, uh, they're trying to find the truth, and they get mixed up uh, in some cult. But if their heart is open and responsive to God's work in their heart, they will find the truth. And if someone's heart is open in some liberal church in America, uh, they will find the truth. And I've led, I don't know, hundreds of people to Christ out of liberal churches, out of apostate denominations who were there, not because they wanted to be there, but because that's what they grew up in, or that was the group that reached out to them and invited them. Listen, I've met other people who are in liberal denominations who are there for another reason. I've often said that liberalism is a halfway house between biblical orthodoxy and total atheism. People who aren't comfortable with with, uh, the truth, and yet they know in their heart there's a God, uh, so not wanting to embrace the truth, they embrace liberalism. And that's where they want to be, uh, by choice. And those folks will not have a chance to hear the gospel and clarity and power. So God in his perfect justice knows what he's about. You know, my sense is is that most people in America won't have a second chance. You know, who I see are the tongues and tribes of every nation that the Revelation describes during this great tribulation. Um, God is going to accomplish during the tribulation period, what we've been trying to do for a long, long time. You know, uh, Wycliffe Bible translators and other groups are out there, you know, killing themselves trying to translate the Bible, and that's what they should be doing. That's what we're all called to do, to reach every tribe, tongue, and nation. But the good news is that what we haven't yet completed, God is going to complete during the tribulation. Jesus promised it in Matthew twenty four fourteen in this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, 
and then the end shall come. And if you look at Matthew 24, starting in verse 4, all the way through the end of the chapter, there's a perfect parallel between that chapter and what we read in the book of Revelation. Uh, Someone called last week about Revelation 6, and I said, well, if you dovetail Revelation 6 with Matthew 24, you see how it fits. The first seal is the false Christ. Revelation 24, 5 speaks of those who come in their name saying, I am Christ. The second seal is war. Matthew 24, 6 and 7 speaks of wars and rumors of war and nation rising against nation. The third seal speaks of famine. Matthew 24, 7 speaks about nation rising against na- uh, nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there'll be famines in many places. Uh, Uh, The fourth seal speaks of death. That dovetails with Matthew 24 and verse, let's see, 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation, will kill you. You'll be hated on account by all the nations and so forth. My my point is, if you follow it all the way through, it's during the time of the great tribulation that the promise that the gospel is going to go to the whole world, it's going to be fulfilled. God is going to pull it off. And uh, the 1040 window, it will be entirely reached. Everyone who wants an opportunity to hear the gospel will hear the gospel. Um, and God will pull it off. But my sense is, is that people in America who have the opportunity to hear the gospel just about everywhere, uh, and they may be in a liberal church. Well, listen, God's sovereign, I realize it, and his timing of when people is converted, are converted is, is, is a part of his sovereign plan too. But um, my, my sense is that most people in liberal churches won't be included in that group. Uh, their chance is now, and they, they ought to take it. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980. And you can email us at tbl at net. as Lee from Connecticut has. He would like to know, is there a version or versions of the Bible you recommend or would recommend avoiding? It seems as though the debate can become very contentious and cover a wide spectrum uh, from everything from the message to uh, King James Version-only supporters. Uh, Lee would like to know... Uh, what is an accurate version if such a thing exists? I mean, we'll get to that in just a second, but we always give uh, preference to live callers, and we have a live caller standing by now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I actually have two questions, same subject. Uh, I just saw in the paper where uh, South Carolina, this group called I Believe SC.net, put out a license tag, and it's got three crosses and a sunset on it, and uh, it's for, uh, I guess, the spokeswoman for the group said it's for Christians of all denominations to be able to share their faith. Uh, They put it out because uh, the courts blocked South Carolina from putting out a tag like that because it was, you know, separation of church and state, but this one's available because it was put out by a group. So my question is, is, what do you think about people, uh, specifically Christians, putting tags like that on their car or, or the ictus uh, fish or stickers or anything like that, publicly uh, proclaiming uh, their faith? Uh, or uh, do you think, agree with something Alistair Begg said about how, you know, he, he doesn't see anything wrong with it, but if you look back at the, the disciples who didn't have this thing and others, that we should be mostly focusing on living out our faith rather than putting, putting stuff on our cars. 
Well, I suppose if you have an ichthus in the back and you pass somebody doing 90, and uh, you know, it may not be the best witness. So if you put those external symbols on the outside of your car, just be just be conscious of your, your, your testimony. You should be conscious anyway. But, um, you know, there's, uh, there's nothing wrong, obviously. I mean, we could debate, you know, states' rights and other things and whether those kinds of things should be, you know, on license plates. And I, I'm not against them. I'm in favor of them. Uh, but lay that aside. Let's just take the general principle, whether it's a bumper sticker, an ichthus, or whatever it might be on the outside of your car. Uh, you know, how effective are they? Well, you know, I, I suppose it might strike up a conversation with someone that's in the realm of possibility. Um, though I, I can't say that that's ever happened to me, though I don't have a lot of paraphernalia on my car. Um, but I did one time, and, it, and a conversation never came. Uh, the other side of witness certainly is lifestyle, uh, but lifestyle evangelism won't lead anyone to Christ. Uh, the gospel has to be heard uh, in word. Uh, God has entrusted us, Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 5, uh, the ministry of reconciliation, and he also says in that same chapter, in the same context, the word of reconciliation. So no one can become a Christian by looking at your life. Uh, someone becomes a Christian by hearing the plan of salvation. All of these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. So at some point, the bottom line is faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God is we have to present the plan of salvation. People don't believe and then later discover what the gospel is. You don't believe something about nothing. You believe something very specific in order to be saved. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe, Paul wrote. And he defines specifically the gospel. I delivered to you as a first importance the gospel, that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. So if these things, whether it's your lifestyle or some symbol on the back of your car give you an opportunity to share Christ, fantastic. Obviously, if your lifestyle contradicts that you are a new creature in Christ, then your credibility to share the gospel is significantly diminished. God's still sovereign in that. Um, You know, when Jim Baker was visiting prostitutes and had the largest TV ministry in the nation, people were still coming to Christ. Uh, Same with Jimmy Swagger. Why? Because the Word of God is alive and sharper and active, uh, and it penetrates the hearts, and it deals with man and where he's at in his um, sinful state before God. So sometimes God uses us in spite of ourselves, but we don't want that to be the case. The tenor in the New Testament is we are to be filled with the Spirit uh, so that God can use us um, by his Holy Spirit to present the gospel. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, back to that question from Lee in Connecticut, who wants to know your opinion about uh, various Bibles, uh, whether they're any good or bad, such as the message, or uh, what do you think of King James Version-only supporters? And ultimately, he'd like to know, what is the most accurate version, if such a thing exists? Well, probably the most accurate version would be a Greek New Testament. But most people cannot read the Bible in its original. Uh, same with uh, the Old Testament Hebrew and some chapters in Aramaic. 
Um, but nonetheless, whenever you're translating a from one language to a next, you, you, you want to be as precise as you can be. And languages are structured differently. <clears throat> For instance, sometimes in Greek, the very first word in the sentence is the verb. We don't do it that way in English. We have subject, verb, object. Well, sometimes the verb is the very first word. And so if we just literally translated it uh, from Greek to English, some of the sentence structure would make no sense to us. So you take into account the receptor language that you're translating into. And there are other languages, by the way, that function like Greek. Their very first word is the verb. Um, And sometimes you change word order in the original languages of the Bible for emphasis. That's how they underlined or highlighted a truth in that you took something that would be out of the normal word order and you changed it around or you modified it in some way. Uh, There are different kinds of translations. There is everything from a paraphrase to probably the most literal English translation available would be what you would call an interlinear translation of the Bible, where you would have a, a Greek text and or a Hebrew text, and underneath it, the English words. Again, you know, that could be helpful to some, I suppose, in their study. Um, I, within the uh, paraphrase realms, there are some that are more accurate than others. Uh, one of the earlier paraphrase uh, translations was done in England. It was a New Testament by J.B. Phillips. In the United States, uh, there was a translation called the Living Bible, And uh, it was decent, though I will say the guy who did the Living Bible didn't know a word of Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. And he just took a bunch of English translations and put them side by side. And times when he had some serious questions, he would consult some guys that knew the languages. and, And he did a good job in some places and maybe not so good a job in other places. Um, The Living Bible or paraphrase translations have their advantage Uh, They are written usually on a first or second grade level where translations like the King James or New American Standard or ESV is written on 11th or a 12th grade level. So if someone's reading is significantly uh, impaired in their ability to read, then maybe a paraphrased translation is something that God could certainly use and help them with. Uh, Some paraphrased translations are atrocious, like the message. What was shocking is that the message was put out on Nav Press. And Nav Press is a very conservative, uh, you know, group. Um, I don't think, honestly, they probably did much analysis of it. And so when it came out, you know, people quoted it. I quoted it a few times, and there are some places where it was accurate. But when I actually did an analysis of the message and started reading, I heard it quoted one day. I said, that's the message? Good night. I better never quote that translation again. And then I did some analysis, and I thought, man, this is absolutely horrendous. For instance, uh, go home and read. Uh, you probably pull it up online. I'm sure the message, read 1 Corinthians 6, where they obliterate the sin of homosexuality. Mm, convenient. There's a lot of things they do in the message. Uh, the guy who translated it was a so-called scholar, which I think is highly, highly debatable. But Nav Press wasn't about to pull it off because it made them $9 million in the first year, which was extremely profitable. Uh, But it's a horrendous translation. If you want an evaluation of the message and all the different paraphrase translations, uh, the NIV, the TNIV, the new, new uh, NIV, which came out in 2010 online, 2011 in paper, 
um, the ESV, the New American Standard, the Old King James, the New King James, et cetera, et cetera. Listen to my course in Bibliology and listen to section six, where I go through all the different kinds of translations and the strengths and weaknesses. Some people will attack translations like the ESV or the New American Standard, and they'll say, well, they took the blood out of the Bible. Well, you know, they, it's a liberal translation. Well, the word for blood appears 97 times in the King James, and it appears 96 times in the New American Standard in the ESV. Huh, okay. Uh, so, you know, are they taking all the blood out of the Bible? Oh, they took hell out of the Bible. Look, there's a verse that affirms the deity of Christ in the New American Standard that doesn't affirm it in the King James. And we could say, well, you know, the King James takes the deity of Christ out of the Bible. I don't think so. So that is always a challenge in translation. I prefer for Bible study purposes uh, as close a literal translation as we can get. And I think that would be found in translations like the ESV and the New American Standard, the New King James. In the Old King James, the challenge of the Old King James is the English. One of the things I don't like about some translations are the official Bible study notes that go with it. So while ESV is decent, there are some places where there are notes I don't like. And I know it's become a very popular translation. And I think it's largely popular with all these guys who for probably a couple decades were using the NIV. And then they realized it wasn't so literal. And so they found the ESV, and they said, oh, this is refreshing, a more literal translation. Um, the NIV is um, not nearly as literal. For instance, um, uh, in Matthew chapter 26, uh, the NIV totally misses the fact that it's after the resurrection of Christ that certain Old Testament saints come out of the grave. Uh, the Greek text is very, very precise, uh, but they totally miss it in the NIV. Uh, that's not good. Um, and so sometimes in their trying to make it readable, they lose the literalness of the text. And for a lot of churches, it doesn't make a difference because the pastor doesn't really teach the Bible, doesn't teach through a text of Scripture. But a pastor who really interacts with the text is going to want a more literal translation. He'll be disappointed. And now the new NIV, which came out in 2011, which is a composite between the TNIV and the NIV 84, uh, I think has made some gender uh, decisions that are not healthy and not good. But again, listen to my course on Bibliology, Section 6, where I do an evaluation of English translations. Uh, it's rigorous. It's about 100 pages long. But if you really want to study this issue, I use the New American Standard. I personally think it's the number one most precise English text that's available to us today. Um, and interestingly, a lot of the people that you listen to on this network uh, use it, uh, whether it's John MacArthur or David Jeremiah or Joseph Stoll or Erwin Lutzer or Tony Evans. And I think there's a reason because those guys are, uh, like myself, committed to teaching the Bible in an expository fashion, and they appreciate the preciseness of the text. Let's go to the next question. Our next listener would like to know whether he should tithe on his monthly disability check. Well, whatever increase God gives you. You know, um, if that's your income, then you give off of the increase that God gives you. If God puts, you know, $300 a month in your hand, then give $30 to the Lord. God will bless that. You know, sometimes people say to me, oh, pastor, how can you teach? 
you know, some widow on a fixed income who receives her Social Security check to tithe off of it. Well, I don't. I teach it because God teaches it. Oh, isn't that cruel? Listen, it'd be cruel for me not to teach it. God's going to take care of that widow. He's going to bless her. He's going to meet her needs. And when she's obedient to what the scriptures plainly teach, then God will honor that, whether he ministers her needs through the church body, but he will take care of her. You can't outgive God. And when you obey God, all things being equal, unless you're under his discipline or violating other biblical principles of, of financial stewardship. And I know sometimes people view tithing as a magic bullet, and it's not. Uh, there's a lot of principles that God gives on stewardship. In our course, Financial Fitness, God's Way, we look at the concept of stewardship, that it's not ours, it's all God's. We look at what the Bible says about giving, saving, debt, and investing. And sometimes people violate, you know, say debt things, and they say, well, I tithe, and I don't understand why I'm in such a financial mess. Well, you can't obey this principle of finance and ignore this one over here and expect uh, to operate in God's economy as he intends for you to function. All right, very good. Our next caller would like to know, when was it exactly that the races began? And also, if Adam was made from dirt, what race was he, or was he any race? Okay, good question. Well, the races really start uh, in the book of Genesis at the Tower of Babel. So God, uh, in typical uh, mosaic fashion, will sometimes describe an event, and then he'll go and explain it. You see this all the way through the Torah. So Moses describes in chapter 10 all these different people groups, and then in chapter 11, he tells us how it all happened. And he speaks of the Tower of Babel and how, you know, man sought in his pride to to basically exalt himself, and God brought a judgment, and he confused the, the their work and the peoples with different languages and broke them into different groups. And here's the thing with evolution. They don't really have a solution for the various races and how they, quote-unquote, evolved, except to say that, well, these are mutations. In fact, Hitler took Charles Darwin's uh, doctrine of evolution and built his whole teaching that the German people were superior folk and that uh, the Aryan race was and uh, that, you know, blacks and other folks, Jews, were, you know, less than superior and they were, you know, down there in the evolutionary scale and should be destroyed. You know, that's evolution. Um, there is a reason for the races. And interestingly, and even modern science will confirm this, that when a people group intermarries within itself— um, you know, you intermarry with a language group that you understand. If you speak French and somebody else speaks Chinese and you can't understand them, you probably won't develop a romance. But if you can understand each other, as you could see how it would happen, then you'd marry someone in your like language group. And as that intermarriage went on generation after generation, then there were distinct uh, facial, racial uh, characteristics that developed. And so when I go to the Ukraine, I've been there so many times, Eastern Europe, I can see a distinct physical feature in Ukrainians that are different from Russians. And I can see a distinct uh, physical feature in people who are from Sweden that are different from people who are from the Hebrew people because uh, there are certain features. And so sometimes even in America, I'll see a Ukrainian. I know from the Ukraine, and I'll, I'll greet him in Ukrainian, and then they kind of look at me and uh, because 
it's obvious from their features. There's a reason for that. So the Bible gives a reason for the races. And it's found really in Genesis 10 and 11. You might want to listen to my messages that are online at searchthescriptures.org where I go into that in great detail. Let's go to the next question. All right. This is a question that came in last week via the email. A listener says, the other day I had seen Facebook pages of many people in a church I attend, and I was surprised by many people's interests. Many listen to rock music as their music of choice and watch a lot of the TV shows that uh, the world watches. What is the balance when John says, if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us? Well, it is true. Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away. Who is he commanding that to? Well, he's commanding it to believers. It's a command to us not to fall in love with the world system. He's not talking about the people of this world. Uh, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Jesus was a friend of sinners. But we don't embrace their value system because the God, small g, of this world, Satan, is energizing it. And he's the one who's working in the sons of disobedience. So God's people are to mature. They're to grow up in Christ. How do you grow up in Christ? Well, Romans 12, present yourself to God as a living and holy sacrifice. And do not be conformed to this world speaking of this world system, but be transformed, how? Through the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what God's will is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So yeah, you may go to some Christians, you know, Facebook, and some Christian lady is in her bikini and half naked and doesn't really care, and she's worldly. Now, maybe she's not a Christian, maybe she is, and just very immature, Uh, So, you know, we're to grow up in Christ, and so we're given that admonition. All right, good question. Very good. Lisa in Billings, Montana writes, I heard the first sermon ever on your website where you said Jesus did not know the day or the hour that he would return. Why don't you think he knows that today? Well, you couldn't have been listening to my website because I I didn't teach that. So uh, you must be confused. Now, there's another website, Search the Scriptures uh, dot com. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're on that, but it, it certainly wasn't anything I taught. There is a passage in Matthew's gospel, and it's found in Mark as well, concerning the return of Jesus from heaven. Um, and there, uh, it's actually found in, in those two gospels. Let me, let me find it first in Matthew here real fast, in Matthew chapter 24. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the Son, uh, not not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. So again, a, a very, very clear, specific statement. Now, um, understand the context from which Jesus is speaking this. He's speaking this uh, in terms of his human knowledge, not from his omniscient divine knowledge. But remember, like Luke 2.52 teaches, Jesus learned In what sense? Well, in the kenosis, in the emptying of himself, um, he restricted the use of certain divine attributes unless he was specifically directed by the Father. And John's gospel repeatedly highlights, oh, yes, this is what I saw my Father doing. And, um, And so while he is omniscient, he restricted the use of that omniscience unless the Father gave him that opportunity to exercise it. So from his earthly point of view, Jesus didn't know. The question is, does he know it now? And there are different ways this text, by the way, is handled. 
some people have uh, who have adopted what's called open theism says that God is learning. Now, that's, that's heresy. And they, they say that, by the way, not just of God the Son, but God the Father, that God learns things. Um, no, God doesn't learn anything. God knows the beginning and the end. God is omniscient. Uh, another way to address this passage is in Matthew's account where he says, not even, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son. That it is, and this is how I've typically taught it is that in terms of his human knowledge, he didn't know. Uh, he wasn't exercising his divine omniscience. So I take it from Acts 1, he now knows. He now knows. Um, when Jesus is asked the question right before his ascension into heaven, uh, they said, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Which would be a, a reference to the second coming of Messiah, not when he comes you know, as a suffering lamb, but when he comes as a reigning Lord. And he doesn't say, well, I don't know. He just says, it's not for you to know the times or the epics, which the father has fixed on his own authority. So I take it he knows now, but a third way, and some conservative evangelicals hold this position, is that the use of the word no is not in terms of information, but in terms of choice. Like, I never knew you. Well, what do you mean? You didn't know that I existed? Well, I didn't choose you. Uh, and again, we could debate on what basis God chooses, but that is a usage of the Greek word oida. And so some would say that what Jesus is referring to in Matthew twenty four thirty six is that he doesn't know in the sense that he doesn't choose. The father chooses and in submission to the, to the father, um, that's the father's decision. So anyway, um, good question, but you must be getting me confused with somebody else. Let's go to the next one. We've got about a minute and a half. Maybe you can answer this listener who would like to know, what do you heard or what do you think of Francis Chan? I don't know a whole lot about him. I know he's a pastor on the West Coast. I've seen some stuff about him from time to time. I, I know he has the gospel. He's a gospel preaching pastor and people have come to Christ. And um, if I remember, there was a controversy in the last year or so that uh, concerned him. Um, I, I have to admire him in some respects. I, if I remember too, I read something about him that he takes all the royalties of an, on his books and and gives it to the Lord's work. Has lived a sacrificial lifestyle. I think some people in the last year uh, were accusing him of being, you know, too monastic in his approach uh, to worldly goods. And if I recall, he resigned from the position of his church. But I don't really want to say a whole lot about him except to say I know he's a brother in Christ and he preaches the gospel, but I don't know a huge amount about him. There is an article in Christianity Today on him. And if you uh, Google him, Christianity Today, you can find out more. We're out of time today, but enjoyed the questions you had uh, for us. And if your question wasn't answered, well, God willing, we'll be back next Tuesday for the Bible line. Hope you can join us then. Have a great day. Thank you.